my name is Keith. I'm uh, one of the uh, elders as well here at Pillar San Antonio. Delighted to have you with us this morning. Um, this was not on script, but I want to take a moment and um, uh, give a praise update um, on something on the foster care front. Um, as you know, it's one of our priorities here as a congregation. Um, and just over a month ago, uh, we had the opportunity to uh, be the parent organization uh, for an event for foster parents and adoptive parents, a marriage retreat. Uh, that retreat was held at the H.E. Butt Foundation camp out in uh, Leakey, Texas. Um, and we had 24 couples that came together uh, from around San Antonio, Bear County, um, all the way up from New Braunfels. Uh, and it, God wildly exceeded our um, expectations and imagination. Um, the amount of healing that took place there, uh, the marriages that were touched, uh, and the opportunity for married couples to come together when most of them don't get an opportunity to get away. Um, we were able to work with um, a couple of volunteers from our congregation, helped arrange respite care uh, for each of those couples. Um, it was just, it was amazing. I don't even know how to begin to describe it. Um, so I just want to thank you, thank especially um, a couple of our volunteers, Alice and Gina, um, who uh, served with us and went out for the weekend, David, who led worship for us, um, and just uh, thank you for your prayers as well. Along those same lines, um, another way that you can get involved in this scene is through uh, right now for the next couple of weeks, um, we are having a baby diaper and um, baby diaper or baby wipe drive, okay? Um, yeah, I'm going to get all those words out together. Okay? Um, as when you're, when you're a foster parent, one of the things you, you don't realize is if you take a newborn baby or a baby in general, uh, they go through um, a lot of diapers. Um, and the foster care system does not provide any kind of additional allowance for that. Uh, there's, you get a stipend for kids, but babies in particular have a lot of expenses. There's an organization called The Vault, and The Vault provides um, brand new foster parents uh, they will outfit them with some diapers and wipes. And right now, their, their um, supply of diapers and wipes is exhausted. And so for the next three weeks, this Sunday, all the way through March 17th, uh, there is a box out in the entryway there. We invite you to bring newborn baby diapers in particular and diaper wipes. And if you'd rather make a monetary donation, um, uh, there will be a link that will be available in the weekly email uh, that comes out this week. So for more information, you can see Gina uh, on that. So please, um, please uh, take the opportunity to serve in that way. Vedran Smilovich was the principal celloist for the Sarajevo Opera. He grew up in a very musically gifted family, and his dad enjoyed putting his family together for musical performances. As a young adult, Smilovich lived in Sarajevo when the siege of his city began in April 1992. Armed forces of the Bosnian Serbs shelled the capital city, and snipers targeted civilians. The siege would last nearly four years. On May 27, 1992, an artillery shell exploded in front of a bakery where people were lined up to buy bread. 22 people were killed, and more than 100 others were badly injured. The next day, Smilovich, dressed in his formal wear for a classical concert, and carried a chair and his cello out into that courtyard. 
He sat down and he began to play Adagio in G minor as a memorial to the massacre. When he finished, he picked up his chair, his cello, and he returned inside to safety. The next day, he once again dressed in his formal attire, took his chair and his cello, and returned to that same location. He sat down again and performed that same adagio in G minor. And the next day after, and the next day, for 22 days, a performance for each civilian who had been killed. Smilowicz went on to play at funerals, even under the threat of snipers, to protest the violence and the murder that he saw, and to do his part to bring peace, to do his best to be a peacemaker. Nearly 2,000 years before, and some 1,200 miles away from Serbia, a Jewish rabbi saw a multitude. The sight of a large crowd inspired, it moved this rabbi to respond, and so Matthew 5 recounts, he went up on a mountain where he could be heard. He went up to a height that would elevate his teaching, a teaching that could not be hid, a teaching that would compel the creation of a church comparable to a city on a hill. He sat down on that mountain. He sat down like a judge or a king would sit on a throne. And he sat down as an authoritative teacher in a place of doctrine. And then he spoke and he said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. It's the seventh of such pronouncements. Each beatitude, as it is called, builds upon the one before it. And now the seventh, seven being a number of perfection among the Hebrews, is pronounced as if such a man is nearly approaching being the perfect man of Christ. He who wants perfect blessedness as far as it can be enjoyed on this earth, Jesus teaches, must be a peacemaker. For peacemakers, Jesus declared, are blessed as they will be called sons of God. I want you to turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read the first nine verses, the Beatitudes up through and including this seventh Beatitude. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. Would you stand for the reading of God's holy word? Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Would you pray with and for me?
Father, as we open your holy word this morning, and we look at these words that are so familiar to us, we pray this morning that your word, which is living and active, might arrest our hearts and our wills. We pray that for a newfound understanding, a newfound conviction of what it means to be a peacemaker. And we pray this morning that as we leave this place, as is often said, while we would greet each other and challenge and encourage each other to go in peace, that we would be those who take peace to the places of darkness and brokenness in the world around us. And that it might be said of us that we are children of God because we look like you in that we are peacemakers. May the words of my mouth now and the meditations of our hearts together in your sight be pleasing, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. We'll try this so that I don't get any more feedback from my cordless. Peace. People say they desire it. We all want world peace. Peace, after all, is the correct answer for a beauty pageant contestant, isn't it? When she's asked, what do you want in your life? World peace. It was, if you're old enough to remember the heart cry of John Lennon and Yoko Ono, who penned those words, all we are saying is, give, you don't remember, peace, peace a chance. He's not even old enough to remember it. And most of us would pray for peace in the Middle East. Most of us don't like war. We don't enjoy hostility. We don't enjoy the absence of peace. We want peace. We want peace in the world around us. We want peace in our relationships. I would suggest unless, the, unless you have sociopathic tendencies, you don't find satisfaction in hostility, right? And even though you try to avoid it, you can't avoid it, and for good reason. But peace, peace isn't just about the absence of conflict. Peace also refers to a state of tranquility, of calmness, of restfulness. The Manry House is full of chaos and noise most days. When our oldest son recently moved home for a while, he realized just how noisy our house is and is oftentimes trying to now get away from it. With eight people, two dogs, and one fish... 3,200 square feet just doesn't seem like enough most days. And at least, thank you. <laughs> at least once a day, if not more, I find myself thinking what I wouldn't give for a little bit of peace and quiet. Peace. It is at once in the same time both the absence of something and the presence of something else. It is the absence of unrest, tension, chaos, and hostility, and it is the presence of calmness, restfulness, wholeness, and tranquility. Peace. It can mean so many things. 
In Scripture, we have two primary words for peace. The first is in the Hebrew. It's the word shalom. And the second is in the New Testament. In the Greek, it is the word erene. To understand the second, you really need to understand the first. Shalom. We find it initially in the creation account of Genesis. Not explicitly, it's not stated, but it is pictured. Think with me about the creation account. At the end of the six days of creation, God looked at all he had made and he declared that it was good. But not just good, very good. Everything worked together in perfect harmony, in perfect shalom. From the smallest subatomic particles to the largest galaxies spinning in space, from the beast of the field to humans, there was a right relationship among God's created order. A right relationship between God's creation and a right relationship between God's creation and God himself. It was the essence of shalom. All was right vertically and horizontally. Peace was present. But shalom, as we know, if you know the Old Testament story, was broken in the fall in Genesis 3. Shalom was broken between us as human beings, as we would see in the murder of Abel by his brother Cain. Shalom was broken between us and creation, as man would be forced to toil to bring forth food from the earth. And most devastatingly, shalom was broken between us and God. Yet God, who is rich in mercy, planned to restore shalom. As you read the Old Testament, you find that word shalom mentioned 300 plus times. More than 300 times in the pages of the Old Testament, Scripture speaks to the very hope, to the very longing of the human heart. You see, we long for shalom because God made us for shalom. We desire shalom with God and each other because shalom is a picture of God's creation at its best, the way he purposed it to be. A creation characterized by shalom is one in which relationships are marked by love and loyalty with God and with one another. Shalom carries the connotation of wellness, of welfare, of prosperity, of wholeness. Shalom is synonymous with all that is good. Whenever we read the word shalom, peace, in the Old Testament, it should hearken us back to God's original created order, to God's design. The Old Testament authors, they, they point not only to this hunger for shalom and for God's desire for God's people to be a people of shalom, but more importantly, the Old Testament foresees, it prophesies, and it directs our attention to the day when shalom will once again break into our world. The day when the prince of shalom would overturn the rule of chaos and reintroduce shalom into into the cosmos. And the Old Testament foresaw the day when shalom will one day finally be realized, when things will be returned to their pre-fall condition. When you flip over the pages to the New Testament, in the Greek language, we find the word shalom replaced by the Greek word erene. The Greek word erene draws heavily from the Hebrew concept of shalom, but what it adds primarily to shalom 
is the fulfillment of this peace in Jesus Christ. We see this vividly pronounced in the birth announcement of Luke chapter 2. You remember it. I know you're familiar with the words. Then the night of Jesus' birth, the angel of armies, the multitude of heavenly hosts, sang glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, reine, among those with whom he is pleased. And while the Old Testament foresaw and it cast its hope on a day when shalom would be realized, the New Testament sees shalom break into the world in the person of Jesus Christ, the one whom Paul wrote in Ephesians 2.14, is our Irene. He himself is our peace. Jesus became the shalom that was destroyed in the Garden of Eden. And because of Jesus, who is our Irene, we now look forward to a time that's pictured in Revelation 21 and 22. I love those chapters. If you haven't read them recently, I encourage you to go back and read them again. The picture of the new heavens and the new earth that are where we are told that everything will be made right again. When everything that is broken and wrong with this world now will be corrected. A time when peace will finally replace hostility. When Shalom will once again be the rule of the day. When brokenness, death, pain, and violence will cease and creation will return to its former glory. Peace. We were created for peace. Sin destroyed peace. Jesus became peace. And we will someday dwell in peace. But what about now? How then should we live with the cross behind us and glory ahead of us? Blessed, Jesus declares, are the peacemakers. Not future tense. Not blessed will be the peacemakers. Not past tense. Blessed were the peacemakers. But present tense. Blessed are the peacemakers. What then is a peacemaker? Who is a peacemaker? And what does a peacemaker look like? Well, notice what Jesus doesn't say, and this is what really struck my mind and my heart over and over again as I studied this passage these last couple of weeks. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the peace lovers. Blessed are the peacekeepers. Blessed are the peaceable. Blessed are the peaceful. Nothing wrong with those things, right? We could make an argument from Scripture that each of those are godly traits, but that's not the beatitude. Those are not the hallmarks of a disciple to which our attention is drawn in this scripture passage. Rather, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemakers. Those who make peace. Those who create peace where there is no peace. Those who work toward peace where there is violence. Those who pursue peace where there is hostility. Those who strive for peace where there is injustice. Those who create peace where there is chaos. Those who bring peace where there is brokenness. And those who embody peace where there is strife. 
Blessed are those who enter into those environments, who bring wellness, tranquility, calmness, healing, and whole relationships in place of discord and animosity. Blessed are those who work toward those ends, not those who peacefully resist involvement in conflict, not those who refuse to get involved, and not those who just won't rock the boat in order to keep the peace, who go along with the tide so as not to stir things up, who are known for their ability to keep things and eat even keel. No, rather, Jesus says, blessed are those who get involved. And because they got involved, the situation is better for it. Blessed are the peacemakers. Within recent memory, there are numerous examples of peacemakers in history. We celebrated Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. just recently, who's remembered for promoting freedom through nonviolence and advocating civil rights for African Americans. King won the Nobel Peace Prize for combating racial inequality through nonviolent resistance. Blessed are the peacemakers. History also remembers Mohandas Gandhi, a charismatic leader who advocated for India's freedom and prescribed nonviolent protest. Blessed are the peacemakers. Our nation will never forget Abraham Lincoln, who, while president during America's most bloody war, is remembered for the Emancipation Proclamation that marked a step toward liberty for all. Blessed are the peacemakers. And because of his death in days only recent past, the name of Alexei Navalny will now live on in history, a man who had the courage to speak up against the tyranny of Russian, the Russian president, and seek the peace of his people. Blessed are the peacemakers. Each of these weren't just peace-loving. They weren't just peaceful. They weren't only peaceable men. They didn't just desire, wish for, or pray for peace. They involved themselves in order to make peace. But here's the things, thing, my brothers and sisters, let me be truthful with you. Being a peacemaker is dangerous business. This is a dangerous beatitude because the world doesn't like peacemakers. When you enter the skirmish between light and dark, between right and wrong, good and evil, violence and nonviolence, hatred and love, you paint a target on your back. For you see, the world has no use for peacemakers. The world persecutes peacemakers. And if the world can't shut down and silence peacemakers, it will kill them. Martin Luther King Jr. was shot dead while standing on a balcony outside his second floor room at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. He was assassinated by an outspoken racist, James Earl Ray. Mohandas Gandhi was assassinated by a young Hindu extremist while walking to his prayer meeting. Ironically, he was killed because of his beliefs in nonviolence. Abraham Lincoln was shot dead by John Wilkes Booth, who stood against equality. And Alexei Navalny is thought to have been killed by Vladimir Putin to silence his dissidents. Now, I doubt that any of us are going to be called to peacemaking to the degree of those historical figures. So how are you and I to be peacemakers? We'll consider for a moment just a few of the charges given to us in Scripture. Psalm 34, 14, seek peace and pursue it. Mark 9.50, be at peace with one another. Romans 14.19, pursue what makes for peace. 2 Corinthians 13.11, aim for restoration, comfort one another, live at peace. 
1 Thessalonians 5.13, be at peace among yourselves. Hebrews 12.14, strive for peace with everyone. My friends, no matter the station to which you are called in life, you and I are called to be peacemakers. We're to make peace in our homes, in our workplaces, in our communities, in our church, and in our society. We are to seek the wholeness, the welfare, the well-being, the healing of those around us. And when we see evil, oppression, injustice, pain, agony, heartache, poverty, abuse, neglect, sickness, we are to be those who intervene in order to bring shalom and erene wherever it is lacking. We should be looking for those ways where we can bring peace between people between people and creation, and between people and God, as we work to be peacemakers. It's our calling. But more than that, it's our DNA. I think that's really the point of the second half of this beatitude, if you think about it. Jesus continues, blessed are the peacemakers for what? They shall be called the sons of God. Why are peacemakers blessed? They're blessed because they're recognizable. When people look at a peacemaker, they see the image of God the Father. My oldest two sons both look like me. Poor boys. I've been told on numerous occasions that I can't deny them. In other words, their resemblance is too great to refute their sonship. Think about that. They resemble me because they are from me. They are a part of me, and I am a part of them. I think that's what Jesus meant here. He's not saying we know that someone who makes peace becomes a child of God. We know that's not how it works. John 1.12 tells us to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tell us that it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, not even peacemaking so that no one can boast. No, Jesus' point here is that the children of God are recognizable by their peacemaking because God himself is a peacemaker. When we make peace, we resemble God. Consider for a moment the greatest example of peacemaking known to mankind. Jesus, that same rabbi who sat on the mountain in a place of authority and proclaimed this profound truth, practiced what he preached. He stepped into the realm of darkness when, as Paul tells us in Philippians 2 and 6 and following, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Jesus, the one through whom all things were made, became a created being himself. Jesus, the true light of the world, stepped into the darkness. Jesus, the one who knew no sin, became sin for us. Jesus, the one who had no beginning and will have no end, submitted himself to death and burial. Jesus, the only one who is blameless, associated with prostitutes and tax collectors, touched the lepers and befriended the sinner. Jesus broke the back of sin, introduced the defeat of violence, proclaimed the imminent end of evil, and promised victory of light over darkness, ensuring the defeat of the great serpent. And for his peacemaking actions, Jesus was crucified. 
Jesus, the one who proclaimed blessed, the blessedness of peacemakers, became the ultimate peacemaker. He became, Paul reminds us, our peace. And when we follow in his footsteps, we resemble him. And for that, we are called blessed. As we prepare to close this morning, I wonder if you are a peacemaker. My friend, it is impossible for it to be so if you are not first at peace with your Father in heaven. Men and women have loved peace, and they've even tried to make peace throughout history. But even the likes of Gandhi and others who may have affected great change and experienced God's common grace were in the end lost if they did not know the Prince of Peace. If you're here this morning and there is no peace between you and your Father in heaven, let me invite you in the moments that follow to open your heart and to surrender to the one who came to bring peace. You need not worry about the condition of your heart or your life today. Come as you are. He knows your heart and your deepest and most horrifying secret sins, and he loves you anyway. Don't live another day in enmity and hostility with your creator. Allow the wall of hostility to be torn down between you and your heavenly father by the only one who can do so, the peacemaker, Jesus Christ. Now, some of you have experienced that peace, but you are still not at peace internally. You're fighting the Holy Spirit. You're living in disobedience to his calling, and that disobedience and that unrest manifest itself in hostility. Hostility in your home, in your workplace, in the church, at school, in your neighborhood. You know what I mean. You can't figure out where that lack of peace is coming from. Something is just not right. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, your conscience is like a ghost haunting you by day and night. There's war internally in you. You know God is calling you to do something or stop doing something else, and yet you continue to disobey. It may be a relationship that you are the cause of breaking or a sin that you have been refusing to surrender. Whatever it is, you know the reason that you are not at peace. You're being disobedient. And the result is chaos and war internally. Still others are ignoring an environment of darkness, of brokenness, of injustice, of oppression, or evil around you. And you're doing so perhaps out of fear. Fear of being rejected. Fear of failure. Fear of persecution. Fear of sacrifice. You tell yourself it's not your issue to deal with. That it's easier to mind your own business. To be peaceable and peaceful. My friend, being a peacemaker requires courageous engagement. Sometimes being a peacemaker requires standing up in an unpopular way against that which is evil. Perhaps it's why the Hebrew word for prince of peace actually means something more like warlord of peace. I love that. And maybe it's why Jesus said he came to bring a sword in Matthew chapter 10, 34 to 36. True shalom and irene require peacemakers to act, to stand for righteousness and stand against evil. True peacemaking isn't easy. It requires action, but 
when the Holy Spirit lives within you, it is a blessed action. It's an action that comes with a blessed peace because you know in your obedience you are honoring your Father. Blessed are the peacemakers. Those who love Shalom and Irene so much that they spend their lives pursuing it. Those who look so much like their Father in heaven that when others look at them, they can't help but see the Father's image. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we love you. And we are humbled and oh so very grateful that you did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but you emptied yourself. You took on human form. You became one of us. You became for us sin. You who knew no sin became our darkest and deepest secrets. And then you went to the cross in order to bear the punishment that we deserved so that we could have peace with you, so that our relationship with the Father could be made right, so that we could be reconciled. And today, we give you thanks for being our peace and being the great mediator between us and the Father. We ask this day, Father, that as we live our Christian lives, as we, in the words of the Apostle Paul, work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as we seek to live lives that are worthy of the gospel calling, that we would embrace this beatitude, understanding that it's more than just being peaceful or peaceable or peace-loving, being peacemakers requires courage. It requires action. And so I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would strengthen us for that action, empower us for that action, and that as we walk in the way of peace, that others might look at us and that they might see our good works, as Matthew 5, 16 tells us, and glorify you, our Father in heaven, that they might say, there's a son, there's a daughter of God. And I want to know that Father because I see him in that Christian. May we be obedient this week. Father, I pray now in these moments that if there are any who are here who would say, I do not know the peace of which he speaks. I'm at enmity with the Father in heaven. My heart and my soul is in a state of chaos and frustration and anxiety, and I need peace. Peace that, in the words of Scripture, passes understanding that if that's them this morning, that this would be the moment of their salvation, that this would be the day in which they would 
raise the white flag and say, I'm tired of being at war with you, Heavenly Father. I surrender my life. And I ask that Jesus Christ, who became peace for us, would bring peace to my life. If that's you this morning and you, and you are asking that for the first time, I'd invite you to seek me out, seek one of the other pastors out after the service today. We would love to pray with you. Father, now as we turn our attention toward your table, the Lord's Supper, which memorializes the act of, of peacemaking, of reconciliation that forever changed history on the cross at Calvary. I pray that, Lord, you would strengthen us by this meal and that we might taste and see that you are good even as we receive the elements. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.